Father in heaven, Lord, what a privilege to be able to be back this Monday evening. Lord, we're so thankful for the weekend that we had, for the rest that we were able to enjoy with you and the special day of worship that you gave to us. And Father, we thank you for this warmer weather that reminds us of the newness of life that's getting ready to spring on this earth. And Father, we want the new life of Jesus to be springing in our hearts. We want the the righteousness of Christ to be revealed in us, and we want a closer walk with You. And Father, I just pray that as we study Your Word, Your Spirit would guide us. That, Lord, You would convict our hearts like You tell us that Your Word is good to do. That You would encourage us. That, Lord, You would give us the strength that we need to continue to move forward in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Revelation's 1,000 years... Now, many of you are very familiar with a time that we're getting ready to talk about. I don't see anyone in the audience who isn't old enough. Well, maybe. But in the year 2000, or as we were rolling into the year 2000, how many of you remember the Y2K scare? Right? Remember all that talk about what's going to be happening in this new millennium that's taking place. Now, I wasn't old enough to be working in a corporate office with a bunch of computer software to have a bunch of the fears that many of the people in the world did, but it's interesting to know that people started to panic in certain spheres, and maybe it wasn't widespread, but I mean it was known around the world that people thought something was going to be taking place at Y2K. People thought there was something wrong with the computer programs that it wouldn't know how to work with the next century and so all of the coding would be wrong and so you'd go to the gas pump and you would go to get gas in your car and that wouldn't work and you would go to the store to buy groceries and you couldn't buy it because the software was down and they thought the world was just going to be like Armageddon or something. Now what's interesting to note is here's some of the things that people said about Y2K during this time. Notice these quotes on the screens. We've got a big problem. We've got a problem. It may be the biggest problem that the modern world has ever faced. I think it is. At 12 midnight on January 1st, 2000, most of the world's mainframes, computers, will either shut down or begin spewing out bad data. Now, I don't know enough about computers to know what bad data is, but I know it's bad, right? And notice it continues on. Most of the world's desktop computers will also start spewing out bad data. Tens of millions, possibly hundreds of millions, of pre-programmed computer chips will begin to shut down the systems they automatically control. This will create a nightmare for every area of life in every region of the industrialized world. Now it continues on, and it says at 12.01, January 1st, 2000, your electricity goes off. Phones aren't working. The computer at your local bank crashes. Police and, 9-1, uh, police and 911 are nowhere to be found. The illusion of social stability is about to be shattered and nothing can stop it. Now notice just this last quote. You might possibly freeze to death. Now that that would have been bad, right? Especially in Michigan. A similar impact to the Great Depression. The end of privacy. A pretext to emergency laws and the coming world government. Now these are just a few of the things that people were writing would be taking place at the beginning of this next millennium that we're now living in. Now I want to ask you a question. Did any of this come true? No. Well, some of you, I don't know if that was a nod yes, but if so, I'd be interested to know how it actually worked out. But no, it didn't happen, right? We realize that we're still here today And your bank accounts were just fine. You were still able to go to work. Weren't you thankful for that? You were still able to go to work. And we realized that the world just continued on like it always would. Now, you might think that some of those quotes that we just read came from a tabloid magazine or something like that. But actually, many of those books could be found in just a normal bookstore. People writing about the scare of Y2K. Even if you went into your local uh, Christian bookstore, many of them were having Christian authors who were talking about these things and noting that maybe the end of the world is just about here. Now I want to ask you a question. In light of that, does that mean everything that we read is true? Does everything about the next millennium that we read on the internet or on the paper mean that it's true? Well, what about if it's in a Christian bookstore? It must be true then, right? No, we all have room for error, right? And we realize that just as there was a great misunderstanding for what would be happening in the next millennium, which we are currently in, the 21st century, there is still currently today an interesting idea about what will be happening in the millennium that the book of Revelation talks to us about. 
Now the title of tonight's message is Revelation's Thousand Years. And what is a thousand year period? What's the word we use to describe that? A millennium, right? And this is the time that Christians are looking at what's going to be happening in the millennium that Revelation chapter 20 describes. What is it that's going to be taking place? Is it going to be another Y2K event? Is it going to be a time of peace and prosperity? What's really going to take place and what does the Bible have to tell us? Well, Revelation chapter 20 is the, tw- is the chapter that we're going to be looking at mainly tonight. And we're going to realize in there is the only place in Scripture that we find God using the term thousand year over and over and over again. And it's because it's the key focal point of study for our understanding of the millennium. Now, before we dive into this study, we have to understand that the word millennium is never used in Scripture. Is that fair enough? but the concept of the millennium is in Scripture. In other words, you can look through and you can read through uh, Revelation chapter 20, and you will realize that nowhere in Revelation chapter 20 does John use the word millennium. But we still see that the idea is very prevalent, the thousand-year period that's happening before Christ comes, or that happens during the, the surrounding the second coming. Now, notice... Many people today, when they look at the millennium, and I I did this today just for the sake of understanding what it was, I got out my trusty smartphone, which we're told we're not supposed to look at that often, right? And I I looked just really briefly, what what do people say about the millennium? Now, I realized that just in a short five-minute search, I found over four different theories for the millennium. And it wasn't that they were just varying slightly from one another, but they actually directly contradicted each other. We didn't know what it really meant. And that shows us that just like there was a lot of confusion about the millennium of Y2K, there's a lot of confusion about the millennium in Scripture. Now, we have the benefit that we can sit here and we can allow the Bible to interpret itself. Right? As we're coming to Revelation chapter 20 this evening, how many of us have an agenda to prove our own belief into Revelation chapter 20? Anyone here? No, we're here simply because we want to study God's Word, and whatever He tells us, we're willing to follow, right? Lord, here I am, just teach me what's important to you, and help me to understand it. Now, many people say, well, the millennium of Revelation chapter 20 is really talking about a time of peace where God and His people are going to be reigning on this earth, and there's going to be prosperity and all of these other things surrounding it. And they tie it into the the concept of, of many other things that we're going to be looking at. Part of it was in Daniel chapter 9 that we discussed two nights ago but also in looking at the topic of Christ coming as a thief in the night, which we'll look at in a couple days, they wonder what is really going to be taking place. Now, I'm thankful that we can go to the Bible and we don't have to have a PhD and we can just clearly understand from reading it some of the main parameters that help us to clearly understand what's taking place in the millennium. Now, before we talk anymore, it would probably be beneficial for us to read our Bibles a little bit because God has the answers we don't. But notice what God says in the book of Revelation that helps us to understand about what the millennium is tonight. Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to begin by reading verse 1 to set the stage. Revelation chapter 20, and notice verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain was in his hand. And notice what verse 2 said. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for how long? He bound him for a thousand years. Now notice verse 3. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations. How much longer? No more till the thousand years were finished. For after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now, in those first three verses, we can understand a little bit. Now, some of us still have fuzzy pictures, and we're just going to sit together and unpack what we just read and try to understand the following verses. Now, notice what's being talked about. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1 tells us that there's going to be a day coming. We don't know when this millennium is taking place yet, but we'll look at it, allow Scripture to show us when this is happening. But it tells us that there's coming a time where Satan is going to be in a little bit of a different position than he is today, right? And what is that position that the Bible tells us in verse 2 that Satan is going to be in? It tells us that Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years in a bottomless pit. 
Now, we're going to look at this a little bit more as what is the Bible talking about when he's bound by a chain? Now, how many of you think that Satan, being an angel, is this Bible is literally talking about him having a ball and chain and him being chained to the earth? Right? Remember, the revelation is symbolic, right? But let's not, let's not get into anything before we can prove what the Bible says. But notice we're going to realize by the setting of the millennium that God not only binds him with a chain, but that there's, he's bound by a chain of circumstances. We'll get into that, and we won't allow my own opinion to be put on the Scripture, but we'll allow it to see it clearly from what God says. Now notice it says that he's bound for how long? A thousand years, right? Or a millennium. That Satan is bound for a thousand years, and that then after the thousand years, what's going to happen according to verse 3? But after these things, it says that he will be set free, right? Or he's going to be released. Now the question is, why will he be released? We're going to look at that very clearly and be able to see it from Scripture. Because in our view, how many of you would like Satan to get, get a get-out-of-jail-free card? Is that something you want to give him? Absolutely not. Now we realize that God knows what he's talking about and that if God is the all-wise, all-knowing God, that he has an answer to the questions that we're looking at. Now notice what we did here. All that we did is understand that there's a thousand-year period where Satan's going to be in different circumstances than he is now. We don't know when this is going to take place. We're not exactly sure why God is letting him be loose for a little time, but the Bible's going to answer it. But we understand that there's a millennium that's coming, and now what we need to see is when will this thousand-year period take place? How many of you would like to know that from Scripture? When is this going to happen? Because I don't know about you, but I'm ready for Satan to be bound in a bottomless pit tonight, right? I mean, that would be great. If we could all have our own opinion, we wouldn't want him to wander the earth anymore. We've realized the pain and suffering he's caused to us for the last thousands of years of earth's history, so let's just get it done with tonight. Well, that's not what the Bible tells us, but we're going to look in the following few verses and notice what the Bible says in laying a parameter for when this thousand-year period will take place. Notice we're just going to keep reading right on from where we left off in verse 4. It says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had, be had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the Word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years. Now this is interesting. Where else did we see something was happening for a thousand years? Well, just a few verses before, right? We see that the Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 3 tells us that Satan is bound for a thousand years. But during that same thousand year period, what's taking place? The Bible tells us that there's the saints of Jesus, what are they doing during that time of the thousand years? What does that say in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4? It says that there's thrones in place, that they were committing judgment, and that they saw the souls of those who were what? Beheaded for the witness of Jesus. Now, who are those who are beheaded for the witness of Jesus? That's the word that we would use, the word martyr, right? Those who are killed for their witness for God. Now all of these people, those who are dead, the righteous dead, are now raised and they're in this experience where they're judging. Now there's some parameters that we can actually learn about knowing when the millennium will take place from this passage of Scripture. We realize that this time of the thousand years is a time where the saints of God will be where? What does the Bible say? Notice it says in verse 4 that they lived and reigned with who? With Christ for a thousand years. Now, where is Christ today? In heaven, right? Is Christ here on this earth? No, we know that He sends through the power of His Spirit. He's with us always. But Christ is in heaven. And here in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, we see that there's coming a time that during this thousand years, Satan is bound on earth, and God's people, obviously even those who are dead, right? Those who are beheaded. How many of you think you can be beheaded and still live? You can't, right? So you're beheaded, and there comes a time where those who are righteous dead and God's people will be where? With heaven, in heaven 
with Christ. Isn't that what the Bible's telling us? I mean, this is very clear that it's impossible to be with Christ without being in heaven. Now, this is just setting some of the parameter for us. Now, I want to ask you a question. We, we studied last time on Saturday morning, what happens when you die? And we looked all through Scripture and we saw a great large understanding, not just from one passage of Scripture, that when, you're di- when you die, you're, you're dead and you sleep in the grave awaiting for Jesus to come in which you're rewarded with heaven or then you re- are rewarded with the punishment of destruction, right? That's what we saw that the Bible was explaining. Now, if you missed that, please feel free to pick up the audio at the resource table and the lesson. We'll cover a little bit more of that tomorrow night. We'll get into it a little bit tonight, but not as much. But if the people of God have been dead, and the only way that the people of God who are dead get to heaven is through the resurrection, then does the millennium take place before or after the resurrection of God's people? Well, the millennium would have to take place after the resurrection. If the people of God, when they die, they don't go to heaven. The Bible tells us that the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5 and 6. And we realize that the Bible talks about even Jesus, when Jesus was speaking of Lazarus in John chapter 11. When Lazarus died, Jesus says that Lazarus was sleeping, right? He was sleeping, awaiting the resurrection, according to Martha, in the next few verses, in verses 20. Now we realize that when you die and you sleep, and if you're finally raised and you're in heaven, then that means that the resurrection must take place before you go to heaven. That's that's what we see throughout Scripture. And now if we see that the people of God are in heaven, then that means that the millennium must be taking place after the resurrection. This is just one little fence post that will help us to understand this. Now, notice that the the resurrection, Jesus says something very interesting about the resurrection that helps us to have a different understanding than maybe what I was raised with, or maybe, maybe it's not new to you, but maybe it was just new to me. But notice what Jesus says about the resurrection in John chapter 5, verse 28. Now, notice what Jesus says. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done what? Evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now notice from Jesus' explanation here, how many resurrections are there? Well, he says there's two, right? From what we can see in this verse, and we're going to see throughout the Scriptures, is this something consistent? Jesus says that there's one There's the resurrection of life for those who have lived close to Jesus and allowed the grace of Jesus to fill their hearts and lives, which is why we're here, amen, and we can have the assurance of that resurrection. But he says that those who have done evil, that there's a resurrection of what? (coughs) Condemnation. Now, which resurrection do we want to be in? The first one, right? We don't want to be in that second one. And we realize that Jesus here says that there are two resurrections. Now you say, what does this have to do with our understanding of the millennium in Revelation chapter 20? Well, if we realize that the people of God are in heaven, judging is what we're told they're doing, and we'll look at that, what are they judging and how does that work and what is it that they're really looking at, but all we simply know right now is that they're judging, and as they're judging in heaven, that has to be after the time of the resurrection, and so we know that the millennium takes place after the resurrection. Now I want to ask you another question. When does the resurrection take place. When does the resurrection take place? Now, just for the sake of mental illustration, and so we don't have to just keep thinking about this, we have that the millennium starts, and we don't know the date or anything like that. We don't know when Jesus is coming. But all that we know is it's sometime after the first resurrection, right? We could agree with that. Because the saints are in heaven, they're raised up with God, and sometime after that time is when the millennium starts. Now, notice the next question, and that is the one that we just asked, is when does the first resurrection take place? Now, I can see some some questions on your face, so make sure if I'm going too quick or if I'm saying something wrong, make sure to write your question down or ask me and we'll make sure to clarify. But the question is, when does the first resurrection take place? Now, aren't you glad that the Bible doesn't leave us just guessing at all these questions that we have? But notice what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17 says. 
It says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will do what? Rise when? First. Now it's interesting that it doesn't say that the dead who are righteous and unrighteous are both rising together, right? But it says those who have died in Jesus, they are the ones who rise first. Now, this is very clear that the resurrection is taking place at what point in time? At the second coming of Jesus, right? And we know this very clearly from the Bible. Now, notice it continues on. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with who? Be with the Lord. Now, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4 told us that they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now it's impossible to live and reign with Christ unless you're in heaven. And the Bible tells us when is it that we're going to heaven? When are the righteous saints, both the ones who are dead, those who are murdered or martyred for God, when are they and the righteous living going to be in heaven? Well, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's at the second coming of Jesus. Now we know that 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we looked at this Saturday morning together, that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 51 and onward tell us that the resurrection will take place at the last trumpet, and that's when Jesus comes the second time. Which just verifies once again what Paul says here, is that the resurrection will take place at the time of the second coming. So if we're living and reigning with Christ, it has to take place at the second coming. Now notice Jesus' words about this. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 1-3, through 3, He says, Let not your heart be what? Trouble. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will do what? I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In other words, if the saints are in heaven with Christ, they didn't just go there by themselves, but Jesus says when you're there in heaven, it's because I brought you, right? I received you to myself. Just very clearly that the resurrection happens at the second coming. Now, I don't know about you, but we could stop and just spend some time thinking about when we're finally going to get out of this sin-sick world. I don't know if any of you ever like to think about that sometimes. You have someone cut you off in traffic, or you have a rough day at work, or you realize the pain of sin and disease and all of these other things. And we begin to wonder, when is this all going to wrap up? Well, we have the assurance that Jesus is coming soon, right? We saw that night number one. Night number two, we saw that Jesus is coming soon again. And from that statue of Daniel chapter two, and we're living in the very ends of earth's history, and Jesus promises us that there's coming a time so soon that He's coming again and those who have fallen asleep in Jesus will be raised into everlasting life and finally being able to enjoy the joys of heaven without any sin, suffering, or death. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited about that day and I haven't even hit a very old age yet to think that I need a new body, right? And there are many people who say, man, I need a new body. I can't wait till the Lord comes and restores me. But God not only restores us physically, but can you imagine what it's like to live in a world with no sin? I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to that day where Satan is bound for a long time and not just let go. We're going to realize that something happens after he's let go, so it's, there's some good news there. But we realize that sin and Satan will be destroyed and will finally be reigning with Christ not only a thousand years, that's just describing the first period, but without, throughout all eternity. This is the hope of eternal life, right? This is the hope that we have as Christians, and the Bible tells us that it's coming soon. Now, at the second coming of Jesus, is everyone happy to see Jesus? Is everyone so excited and filled with joy that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is finally coming to this world? Is that what's going to happen? Well, you know what's really interesting is the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 24, as in the days of Noah, so also shall the what? Coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, the second coming and the events surrounding that is going to be very similar to what it was like in Noah's day. Now I want to ask you a question. When Noah was preaching, how long did Noah preach? 
120 years, right? We have our good Bible students here. And we realize that Noah preached the everlasting gospel for 120 years. How many people were converted and saved through the preaching of Noah? His family, right? Eight people. After all of that work, how many of you think you would be a little bit disappointed if you spent 120 years preaching and all you found were the eight people saved and they were your family? Now you can say, praise the Lord, at least it's my family, amen? But you realize that there was an interesting response. Were there more than eight people on the earth in the time of Noah? Oh, a lot more than eight people. Now, would you say the majority of the people were ready to enter the ark? Or was it the minority that got into the ark? You see that Noah, when he preached, even for 120 years, sharing the good news of the gospel and calling people to repentance and turning from their sin and accepting Jesus, that it was a very few who were ever ready to meet Jesus and to enter into the ark of salvation. Now, Jesus tells us, as in the days of Noah, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And that's why we're here this evening, right? Lord, I, I want to be one of those who are ready. And that's why we're sitting here rejoicing in the hope that we have in the resurrection, but we know clearly that that's not going to be the response of every person alive at that time. Notice how John describes this in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 14 says, Then the, then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, do what? Fall on us and hide us from the, faith, the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the what? The Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come and who is able to stand? Now this is a pretty somber verse that you realize that there's two classes of people at the time of Jesus' second coming, right? There are those when they see Jesus coming in the clouds who are filled with joy and who are filled with hope because this is the very one that they've been reading about. This is the very one who's transformed their lives here on this earth. Jesus is the one who's given them peace that passes all understanding and they can't wait to meet Him. But we know that there's also another group of people and it's those who are running. They're fleeing and they're calling to the mountains and the rocks. Do what? Fall on us. Now, why would you want rocks to fall on you? Is it because you want to live? No, it's because you want to die, right? Anything that can keep me from getting in contact with Jesus, I want it to take place. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want anything more in this world than to be excited when Jesus comes and not fleeing and pleading for the rocks to fall on me, right? And we can have assurance of that, amen? We don't have to wonder if God is with us, if God is willing to save us, but we know that He tells us He's willing to save to the uttermost all that come to God through Him. In other words, Jesus promises salvation so freely, but we realize that these are people who rejected God, that they rejected His teaching, that they turned away and they started to go after their own desires, and before they know it, Jesus came and they weren't ready. Now the blessing is, is that if there's anyone in that position tonight, is it ever too late to accept Jesus? In other words, if we haven't seen Him come in the clouds, can we still accept Him today? Absolutely. The Lord tells us just like the prodigal son, right in Luke chapter 15, that as the son was a great way off, he decided that he would come back to the father. And what was the response of the father towards his son? His son, as, as he saw his son coming to him, and even though his son was filled with filth and he smelled bad and he looked terrible and he lived a prodigal life, the father ran to the son and the son was fully restored in the grace of God. Now how many of you are thankful that we serve a God like that? Amen. And is it ever hard for you to believe that people are running from, as Revelation describes it, a lamb? And I think John almost plays on that irony here. Here's the very one who laid down their life on their behalf, right? Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus, the very one who gave up their life for his life for them. Jesus, the very one who's done everything that he can to reach people, is now causing people by some reason, because their heart is so twisted, to run from him and be repulsed. This is not God's desire at all, but we see what happens with sin, that sin separates us from who? From God. 
And this is what the Bible tells us, that sin will separate us from God. Now, as we're going to go back to Revelation chapter 20, we're going to connect the dots with a couple things that we've read so far. Now, understanding Revelation chapter 20, let's just read through this a little bit more. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. We're going to be reminded of what we've read already. It says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the who? The beast or his image, and who had not received their mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, notice this. This is a parenthetical statement, and notice how it says it. But the rest of the dead did not live again until what? The thousand years were finished. End of that statement. And it says, this is the first resurrection. Which is the first resurrection? Well, obviously talking about those who are in heaven, right? Reigning with Christ. That's what 1 Thessalonians tells us. As those who are in heaven were a part of the first resurrection, right? And what John is saying here is notice what's taking place in the thousand years. Satan is bound. And during that time that Satan is bound, God's people are where? In heaven. And what are they doing? They're judging. And we're going to look at that in a little bit of time. But what are the wicked people doing? It says they're dead, right? Notice verse 5. It says, but the rest of the dead, who are the rest? Those who aren't righteous, right? Those who are wicked. And looking at Revelation chapter 6, that when Jesus comes, there's two things that happen. Those who are righteous, either dead or living, go to heaven. Those who are unrighteous, either dead or living, die. Does that make sense? Now, if you're dead, you don't die again. You understand what I'm saying. But they're all resting in the grave, waiting for the what? The second resurrection. Now, notice what verse 6 says. It says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the what? First resurrection, right? This is what we've already talked about. We want. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him for how long? A thousand years. Now, over and over again, you see the blessing of reigning with God, being in that first resurrection, not experiencing the second death. I want to ask you a question. What is the second death? You know, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is what? Death. Now, some of us realize that as a result of sin, we grow old on this earth, and or just by premature death, we are in the grave. Now, what's interesting to note is that God never designed for death to happen. We've already looked at that a little bit more on Saturday. That God desired to give us life, but after death takes place, when the righteous die, they're still raised at the second coming. In other words, they only die how many times? Once. They die in this earth. Now, for the wicked, if you're alive at Jesus' second coming, and at the brightness of His coming, you have an experience like Revelation chapter 6, verse 14 through 17 described, where you're crying for the mountains and the rocks to fall on you, and it tells us that he's, the people are consumed by the brightness of His coming. That's their first death experience, right? They'd never died before. They die at the coming of Jesus. Now, it's interesting that the Bible says that there's going to be a second death. Now, in order to die again, if you're unrighteous, that would mean there would have to be another resurrection. And this is very clearly what the Bible is talking about, and Jesus was talking about in John chapter 5, that there's coming a time where there's two resurrections, those of the righteous and then those of the wicked. And those who have the, experienced the resurrection of the damnation, like Jesus calls it, are those who will experience the second death. Not only did they die naturally from the cause of Jesus' second coming, or did they die of natural cause thousands of years before Jesus came, but after the, at the second resurrection, they're all brought back to life, and we're going to look at why are they brought back to life, what takes place there, and then we see that they're consumed, according to Revelation chapter 20, one more time. Now, this is just trying to help us paint the picture of what happens in the millennium. During the millennium, the righteous are reigning with Christ. They're judging. The wicked are dead, and who else is on the earth with Satan? His angels? Demons? Now, what is the work of Satan? You know, Jesus tells us very clearly what the work of Satan is. And he tells us in John chapter 8, turn with me to John chapter 8, and notice what Jesus says here. 
John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 44. Now this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, but we're going to notice what He says about Satan in this passage. John chapter 8 and verse 44. Jesus says here, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a what? A murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a what? He is a liar and the father of it. Now that's pretty strong language, right? Jesus says that Satan has two things that he's really good at. One is murdering people, and the other one is lying. Now I want to ask you a question. If Satan's on this world, on the earth, as Revelation chapter 20 describes it, and the righteous are in heaven, and the wicked are dead, and Satan only has two main jobs. One is to kill people, and the other one is to lie to them. What can he not do for that thousand-year period? He can't do his job, right? He can't kill anyone. How can you kill someone if all those who are wicked are already dead, and the only other ones you could kill are in heaven? Now, can he lie to people? Well, who's to lie to, right? The demons are already on his side. You know, he's not trying to co convince them or anything else. We see that Satan has found himself in a position of unemployment. Now, this is the greatest unemployment rate that we've ever seen, and this is the only good type of unemployment, right? Where we see that Satan really has no more work to do. Now, could it be that this is why Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1 describes the experience of Satan as being bound in a bottomless pit? Now, the word that they use in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1 is that Satan was in the bottomless pit or the abyss is the other translation of the word is the, is the understanding that you get when you look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. So, for example, Revelation chapter 20 verse 1 says that it's, Satan was in the abyssos, which means the abyss or the bottomless pit is how we've translated it here. But if you were to look at the same word in the Septuagint, which is just a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the word that they use when the world was without form and void is the word abyssos. In other words, when Satan is on the earth in Revelation chapter 20 verse 1, it's not necessary that he's in this pit where he's just in this endless state of falling down and he's chained and all these things, but really he's on an earth that is without form or void. In other words, it's desolate, right? Now, is this the picture that we get when we read Revelation chapter 20 and have an understanding of Jesus' second coming and where the resurrection takes place? When Jesus comes the second time, we saw that all the mountains and the islands are going to flee away, that there's going to be great desolation and earthquakes and all of these things. And after Jesus leaves, is the world going to be a very pretty place right then? No, it's going to be desolate. And Satan is now bound to the earth. In other words, God says, hey, this is where you're at. For a thousand years, you're going to be spending it here, remembering the pain and suffering that you've brought to humanity for the rest of the thousands of years that you've been doing. And as Satan is there with no one to tempt, and with no one to lie to, and no one to murder, we realize that he's bound by what we would call a chain of circumstances. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard the term before, and I'm pretty sure you have. It's, most, it's a, somewhat of a common term. My wife and I were moving a few months ago, and we had to move, and we were asking our friends to help us with the moving experience, right? I'm not that big of a guy, and I can only lift one end of the piano. And so we needed someone to help, and we're asking people to help us out and stuff like that. And one of my friends just sent me a message, and he said, hey, I'm sorry I can't help. I was going to come over, but I got tied up with stuff at work. Now, what was my friend saying to me when he said that? Does that mean that his boss took him that day and wrapped him with rope around the chair and tied him and anchored him to his office? But he told me he was tied up at work, right? Now this is the same idea that we see in Revelation chapter 20 verse 1. That he's bound by a chain, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Satan's there with a house arrest boot on or locked to the earth, but he's bound by what? What was my friend telling me? Well, circumstances prevented me from being able to come and help you, right? And that's exactly what we see as we understand the setting of the millennium, that Satan is in a position where he's out of work, he's out of a job, and he's bound by circumstances to be stuck to this earth with no one to tempt. 
Now, notice some people, as they read through Jeremiah chapter 4, they see it relating to the issue of the millennium in describing the desolation. And notice these passages of Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23 through 26. He says, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. Now, this is Genesis chapter 1 language, right? And this is also Revelation chapter 20 language. And the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled. Now this is what we were told in Revelation chapter 6, what happened to the mountains, right? And it continues on, and all the hills moved back and forth, and I beheld, and indeed there was what? No man. Is there going to be a man on the earth during the time of the millennium? No. And all of the birds of heaven had fled. Now, when you read that, now this is just an artist's rendition of the bird. It must be the last one fleeing, okay? But we realize that when we read that passage, that it's speaking of utter desolation. Now, notice how Jeremiah continues on. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 33. And at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from what? One end of the earth, even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. Now this is very clear what is obviously going to be happening at Revelation chapter 20. After Jesus comes, the wicked who die, who's going to bury them? The righteous are in heaven. The other wicked are there. And, and now they're just laying on the ground, and this is where Satan is bound. Now how many of you think you might just would rather be in a pit than surrounded by all this death and decay? But you see that God is allowing Satan to realize the penalty or the punishment or the reality of what happens when you followed his way. You see, all that Satan does is lead to death. And now as Satan is bound to the earth, all that he can see is death. And he realizes that really God is fair and God has the best way of doing things because his way is just the way of death. Now, this is what we've noted so far. We're asking the question of when does the millennium take place? And these are some of the, the anchor points that we've found. Number one is that the millennium takes place after the second coming, right? That was clear from Scripture that it takes place after the second coming. Now, number two, the saints are in heaven, right? That's what it said, that they were judging in heaven, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Now, it also tells us, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, and we didn't point this out when we looked through it, but it talks about those who are martyred for God and notice that it says that they were the ones who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the what? The beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. In other words, these are people who had gone through the time when the mark of the beast was being given and they didn't receive it. So that helps us to understand that the millennium takes place after the mark of the beast, right? These people couldn't overcome it if it hadn't happened yet. Now, the last point that we see is that the millennium happens after the first resurrection, but it happens before the second resurrection or the resurrection of the unrighteous. And this is what we clearly see, that Satan is bound to the earth and during this time, it's utter desolation. Now, the question that we have next is what is going to be happening dear, during this thousand year period, right? Why is it that the Bible gives us a thousand years? Why does it tell us about this? What's so important? Why would God choose to do it this way? Well, the Bible tells us, and we've already looked at this a couple times, but now we're going to look in depth of what it is that we're doing in heaven during this time, the righteous people. Revelation chapter 20 verse 4 says, I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was what? Committed to them. Now, I want to ask you a question. Why are we judging? Why is it that we're in this experience of judging for a thousand years? Well, this is what we're going to look at. But notice that this isn't just a new idea to Revelation, but Paul actually talked about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Notice what it says. Do you not know that the saints will judge who? Judge the world. Do you not know that we shall judge angels. You see, we know about this, and Paul obviously knew that this judgment was going to be taking place in which we would be involved, and the question is, why is it so important that you and I are involved in the judgment? Now, let me just ask one question to get it out of the way. Are we involved in the judgment because God's not smart enough to know what's right and what's wrong? 
I, I would hope there's a lot of no's even if there's no head nodding, right? God obviously knows the end from the beginning. He knows all things. So why is it that God would allow me to be involved in the judgment? Now it's clear that in the judgment, and we looked at night, uh, two nights ago, we looked at the whole idea of the judgment and saw that we're reviewing the books, right? God is a fair God and he's taken accurate record so that we know that his choices are just. Now why would the judgment be important? Let me give you one understanding of why the judgment might be important. How many of you know the story that happens in Acts chapter 7 with the stoning of Stephen, right? We've, we've heard that story before. Now, can you imagine at the stoning of Stephen, St Stephen was stoned because of his preaching and because he was preaching the gospel of God, and it tells us that there was someone there at the stoning of Stephen, and it's really interesting that it tells us that it was Saul was there at the stoning of Stephen. Now, do you know who Saul is? Saul's the one who had the Damascus experience and became Paul, the gospel writer, who actually wrote this passage of scripture that's up on the screen. Now, can you imagine just for a second that Stephen's getting stoned and some of the last people that he sees are the ones throwing rocks at him. And as he looks for one of the last times, he sees Saul standing over there in the corner watching the man of God being killed. Now, Stephen gets to heaven, right? Stephen, we have no indication that he's not going to be in heaven, that he's a righteous man. And Stephen gets to heaven, and as he's rounding the corner of, on, on First Street in the New Jerusalem, he looks over and he sees Saul. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I think Stephen would be like, hey, I, I don't know if you guys got something mixed up, like did the elevator go the wrong way, because this guy is not supposed to be here. I mean, the last thing he was doing to me, he was throwing rocks, and, and, then, and then God says, hey, hey, hey. Why don't we come over here? You know, I, I, want to put you, I want to put something on the, the 3D screen real quick and help you see what happened and Saul, who actually his new name's Paul now. Oh, okay. And, and this is what takes place. And Paul, or God takes Paul and he takes Stephen and he brings them to the book of record and Stephen starts reading through it. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah, he stoned me. He did that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He got hit off. He, he fell off his horse. Well, that might be good for him. You know, and all these different things. And then he gets to the point where he says, oh, wait, he repented. And he started becoming one of the most powerful evangelists for God. And he did such great things. Now, do you think for, Paul, for Stephen to be able to enjoy the peace of heaven, he might need some of these questions answered? Right? I mean, it might be a little bit alarming to see the person who murdered you there in heaven next to you. I mean, imagine if you're next to your neighbors sharing a middle wall. And this is the problem that we see. And so God allows the people to be able to go through the books to see that God is fair. You know, it's, it seems to be that Scripture is showing us that this judgment is not just so that we see that God is right, but it's so that our consciences can be settled. Now, we might also have an, an experience that's a little bit different. How many of you have people that you look up to and you expect to be in heaven? Now, I'm not, I'm not putting anything on those people who you're thinking of. But you might get to heaven and you might think, man, why is it that my grandma's not here? Why is it that my pastor's not here? Why is it that whoever, this other person isn't there? I really thought they would be there. And God says, I, I have to tell you something. I want to let you know I'm being 100% fair, but why don't we come back and just look at the record of what was really going on? You know, you saw the outward person, but I was looking at the heart, and this is the situation that was taking place. And God, through this thousand-year period, is allowing people to see that everything that God does is transparent and fair. You see, God doesn't just try to cover it up and say, no, 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 just trust me on this one. But he allows us to see clearly, as we're judging in heaven, that God has made the most fair choice towards everyone who's ever lived and towards all of the angels. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a God that I can appreciate. A God that allows us to see that his way is right, not by coercion, but because he convinces us in transparency. That God isn't like Satan trying to lie, but God is truly so transparent that you can see everything and every act so accurately detailed. Now we need to keep moving. This is what's happening. We clearly see that God's people are in heaven, the earth is desolate, and we're up in heaven judging. Now the question is, what happens after this thousand years? Notice what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7. Notice we've already read Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 6 and we're going down to verse 7. And notice what it says. Revelation chapter 20 verse 7. It says, Now when the thousand years had what? Expired or they were over, 
Satan was released from his prison. Now we're getting to that question that's burning in our hearts, right? Why is he released? Now we're going to get to that. But we have to note first that Satan is released from his prison. Now what prison was he in? Was he in the prison cell? Was he bound by a literal chain? No, he was bound by circumstances because he wasn't able to carry out his own job and because there was no one around, right? This thousand-year period is over and Satan is released from prison, which must mean that he's now back in business. Why could that be? Notice Revelation chapter 20, verse 5. We already read this. But the rest of the dead did not live again until what? The thousand years were finished. Now, if the thousand years are over and the rest of the dead were supposed to live again, at what point? After the thousand years. That must mean that this is when the second resurrection takes place, right? That Satan is no longer on unemployment, but now all of the wicked who have ever lived throughout the centuries are back to life and Satan has a job to do. He's released for a short time, as the Bible tells us. Now this is what the Bible refers to as the resurrection of damnation. In other words, those who raise in this resurrection are those who are going to experience the final destruction that God has for them. Now notice what Revelation chapter 20, verse 8, continues on to say. It says, now when the thousand years have expired, we looked at this already, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to do what? Deceive, right? We told him that was his main employment. He was a deceiver. And he goes out to deceive the nations which are on the what? The four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle. Whose number is as the what? The sand of the sea. Now when the Bible uses this language, how many people is Satan now gathering? What does it say? He will go out to the nations, to the four corners of the earth. Are there four corners of the earth? Well, we know the earth is round, right? And the Bible writers knew that too. If you have any questions on that, we can look in Isaiah where it talks about the round sphere of the earth. But we also realize that the Bible is just using this as symbolic language, right? That they're going out into the four corners of the earth, which means which part of the earth haven't they covered? There's none, right? They're going out everywhere to gather people. And then it also says, it gives some specific names of who they're gathering, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, and then these people are as the numbers of the sand of the sea. Now can you imagine how many people are there? All the wicked from the time, who was the first murderer? Cain. All the way from Cain, all the way up to the last days, are the wicked people, now there has to be billions and billions of people. We don't know who's going to be there, but we know that there's going to be a lot of people according to Scripture, and who is this Gog and Magog? Now, if you look at Wikipedia or anything interesting, you can find all sorts of different theories on who Gog and Magog are, right? Now, we don't want to just take someone else's opinion on what this really is, but we want to allow the Bible to show us who it is. One slide too far. But Gog and Magog, by some, are believed to be different countries, different powers, different things. But did you know that Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, you can go ahead and read that. You'll want to look through the whole chapter as you get home. That Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, we talk about Gog and Magog as people who are so destitute of God, people who are wicked, they're corrupt, they have no God-fearing nature or bone in them at all. And these are people of just complete apostasy. Now we realize that God is using the name Gog and Magog in the same way that Ezekiel was in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Not just talking about the specific nations that are going to be gathered there, but talking about an overview of all of the wickedness and corruption, right? We realize that Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4 used an interesting way for us to understand that the saints were in heaven, and it said that those who were beheaded and for those who were there by the, from the witness for the word of God, right? And we realize that it says that the wicked are there, not by saying, hey, it's wicked people like Hitler and Saddam Hussein and all the others, but it says that these are people who have the same characteristics as Gog and Magog to be gathered for the battle of the Lord in the last days. Now it's interesting to note, why is it that the Lord is allowing Satan to rally all these people? 
what is he rallying them for? I mean, Jesus has already come. The saints are in heaven. Why is Satan still trying to persist in this rebellion? What is he doing? Notice the very next passage of Scripture. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 9. It says that they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the what? Of the saints and the beloved city. I want to ask you, where were the, where were the saints camping for the last thousand years? Were they just pitching tents on earth right next to Satan? No, no, no. The earth was desolate. They were in heaven. They were in heaven with God and they were in the beloved city, right? They were in the new Jerusalem. Now, what is it that Satan is going up on the breadth of the earth and surrounding the camp of the saints? Well, you notice in Revelation chapter 21 that the first couple words of that verse talk to us about how he saw a new Jerusalem, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea, and John sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Now, it's interesting that it must be that the, that the city of God is visible to Satan because he's coming to attack the people of God where they had just camped for the last thousand years. And as Satan is coming and gathering all these people together, why do you think Satan wants to be able to come into heaven? Well, that's the very thing he was told not to do, right? You tell someone not to go there, and they want to go. You also realize that the those who are in heaven are those who are saved with God and they will experience everlasting life. And Satan knows that if he stays outside the city, is he going to have a good chance at life? No. So what do they do? He convinces all of the people around him. Those who had lived in every generation who were wicked now put their minds together and say, how is it that we can go up and surround the camp of the saints and overcome the city of God? Now, they must have been people who had a lot of adrenaline to be able to think that you can overtake heaven, right? These are some serious warriors coming down. Now, what does the Bible say? Are they successful in their feet? As they're going up to the city, as they're going, even though Satan was released for a short time, right? This is what we see. He's come out of that bottomless pit where he's released and people are there to tempt. But now it comes to the point where God is allowing them to make their final attack on his city and notice how verse 9 continues on. It says, And fire came down from God out of, out of heaven and devoured them. Now this is a sad time. Not because we think by God's grace we won't be there. Praise the Lord. We know that the grace of God can keep us from ever experiencing the fire of destruction. But this is time where those who might be ones we love might be ones who we've prayed for, might be family members, where you realize that the final choices are sealed on who's going to follow God and who's not going to follow God. And the Bible tells us that the saints are in the city of God and that all of the wicked are around. In other words, everyone who's ever lived on earth is there at that moment. All of the righteous who have ever lived are inside the city. All of the unrighteous who have ever lived are on the outside of the city. And did you know something really interesting is Revelation chapter 21 tells us actually that the walls of the city are such pure gold that they're transparent and they're as clear as glass. In other words, as you're standing there, we can look outside the city and see those people who have made the choices to not follow Jesus. You can see the people who thought they were so consumed by the things of this world that money was more important than following God. But also the people who are consumed by the world can look in and say, man, that's that lady who drove me to church every week. You know, that's that lady who prayed for me. That's that person who tried everything. And they have this exchange of gazes and they realize that the choices and the punishment that they're receiving is not something that God did despite them, but it was because of their own choices. You know, they all had an opportunity and we all have an opportunity to walk with God, but finally at that point, all the choices of the universe are sealed. And those who had turned from God are no longer with Him. Now this is what we find out about the millennium in Revelation chapter 20. That the millennium begins after the first resurrection or at the second coming of Jesus when the saints are going up to heaven to judge. Now then the thousand years transpires and during that thousand years there's utter desolation on the earth 
and Satan is bound by a chain of circumstances, but at the end of the thousand years, there's a second resurrection, the resurrection of the wicked and the condemnation, and we realize that this is at the point where they try to rally together to attack the city of God, but God finally brings their final destruction. God had a desire to dwell with His people, but here we see in Revelation that the people had so turned their back on Him that God said that He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should what? Come to repentance, right? God doesn't ever want the experience of destruction to come to anyone. And the question is, are we going to be the people inside the city or outside the city? Now, I'm not asking you that question so you lose sleep at night and be terrified, right? You understand what I'm saying. I'm I'm saying this well-meaning. But how many of us could be like the people in the time of Noah thinking that we're going to be okay and we don't allow the grace of Jesus to fully transform and impact our lives like we should? And Jesus is saying at this time, I want you to understand this is going to take place. Just like every prophecy of Scripture has been so clearly fulfilled, we know that this is going to happen as well. And the question is, is where are we going to stand? Are we going to accept the grace of Jesus? Are we going to move in faith and walk according to where He leads us? Are we going to be like the people in Revelation who it says they followed the Lamb wherever He went? Notice it doesn't say they followed the Lamb and the patterns that they had learned from childhood. That's not what it said. But whatever Jesus said, they were willing to follow. And as we see the people who are outside the city, it reminds us that it's not time for us to wait and give our lives to God another day. But the Bible tells us that today is the day of repentance, right? That today is the day that we're supposed to experience the grace of God. We can't wait till tomorrow because tomorrow's never promised. Now I want to ask you a question. Is it easier to put something off and do it the next day? Do you have more motivation to do it the next day? Or do you realize that it's just easier to put it off another day? And another day? And another day? And as we see the prophecy of what's happening in Revelation chapter 20, God is pleading that we wouldn't do anything to delay accepting the grace that He offers to us. You know, Jesus talks to us. The question is, what is it that's going to keep us to have this experience of being in heaven with God. You see, God never wanted us to be in hell. Notice who hell was prepared for. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, it says, Then He will also say to those who are on the left hand, Depart from Me, you cursed into everlasting fire that was prepared for who? The devil and his angels. God doesn't want any of us to experience it. But He says, look, if you decide to live a life separate from Me, If you decide to be the God of your own life, choosing what's best for yourself, just like Satan did, there's only one end. But God is a God who longs for us to be there with His people. Notice what Jesus says, and these are somber words, and I pray that it pricks not only your heart, but my heart. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Notice what Jesus says here. Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to ask you a question. Who is it that calls Jesus Lord? The Christians or the non-Christians? How many atheists do you know that call Jesus Lord? No, right. No one is calling Jesus their master unless they choose to follow Him as a Christian. So Jesus is talking about not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, or not everyone who's a Christian shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But what does it say? But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is what? which is in heaven. Now you might say, how is it possible to do the will of God? Right? Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 tells us that it's God who works in us both to will and to do of God's good pleasure. In other words, we can't do anything that God asks. But through the grace and belief in Jesus, He's able to help us to do that. I can't keep the law of God on my own, but through the grace of Jesus, He can cause it to be written on my heart and lived down in my life. And He says it's not those who are just professing Christianity who are going to be in heaven but it's those who really have a saving relationship with Jesus that causes them to walk in the ways of God. My friends, if there's anything that we know of where God is calling us to do one thing, but we're refusing it to do another because that's the way we've been brought up or that's just convenient or that's whatever it might be, Jesus is saying it's not those who will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Notice he continues on. He says, for many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? 
Now, how many of you even have a resume that looks like that? When's the last time we prophesied? When's the last time we cast out a demon? When's the last time we did many wonder? In other words, these are people who did amazing things for God. But is God concerned about those who just do amazing things for Him? No. God is concerned about those who know Jesus and who are willing to follow whatever Jesus says. The closing verse, Jesus says this, and you can imagine the tears in His voice. And then I declared to them, I never knew, from, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you who practice what? Lawlessness. The law isn't a popular topic today. It wasn't a popular topic in Jesus' day. And Jesus is saying those who live their lives separate from the will of God, the express commands of God, if we choose to go our own way, thinking that we can experience salvation apart from God's system, we're going to be sadly disappointed in the last days. But how many of you are thankful for the fact that we can come to Jesus right now, regardless of what our track record has been like, regardless of what decisions we made even before we walked in here this evening, and we can say, Lord, by Your grace, today, by the grace in Jesus, I'm going to believe that You can save me. Father, by Your faithfulness, I know that You can keep me. By Your, your pure life, I know that You can make me holy. Not because I'm holy, but because Jesus is. And it's only because as we're looking to Jesus and His faithfulness that we can have the assurance that we will enter into the city that God has prepared for us. How many of you want to say this evening, Lord, I don't, I don't want to be outside. I see the sacrifice that Jesus has made on my behalf. Lord, Jesus has done everything for me. He's given His life. He's sacrificed on Calvary. He's given me His grace. And Lord, because of that, I don't want to just be a Christian who says, Lord, Lord, with my mouth, giving lip service. But Lord, I want to be one who does Your will, not because I have to, but from the heart because I want to. Lord, I don't want anything in your Bible to be revealed to me that I don't follow. Lord, I don't want there to be anything between myself and my Savior. Is that your desire this evening? Lord, please, help this to be my experience. Help me to be faithful in the things that you're showing me. And by your grace, give me the assurance that we will be with Jesus someday. Why don't we bow our heads in prayer as we close. Father, oh Lord, we're so thankful for what you've shown us this evening. Lord, we're thankful for Your Word that shows us that You are coming soon. That Jesus is coming to take those who have surrendered their lives fully to Him. That we can be with You in a place where there's no more sickness or suffering or pain. Father, we don't want to be with those who turn their backs on You who live their own ways. Lord, we don't want to put off surrendering our lives fully to You one more moment. But Father, You've seen our hands this evening. Most importantly, You see our hearts currently. Father, You know if there's anything in our lives that's keeping us from following You completely. Lord, I pray that You would give us Your grace to be willing to follow You, but also Your power to be able to do those things that You're calling us to do. Lord, it's because of Your faithfulness that we have assurance that we will be with You in Your kingdom. We thank You for Your goodness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.